sermon text reading is from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Well, we have been in a series since last week. It's a mini-series, really, called Sabbath. And if you were here last week, I already shared a little bit about why we're doing this prior to leaving on sabbatical. Well, number one is to get you ready for our sabbatical. It is to explain to you, I think, you know, what is a sabbatical? And we did a little bit of that last week. I'm going to do some more of that today as well as next Sunday to conclude the series. But it's also to get you ready for your sabbatical. Well, I don't know. I had a sabbatical coming. Well, Sabbatical is actually, you can tell it etymologically where it's coming from. It's, it's many Sabbaths, or it's many, it's many Sabbaths, M-A-N-Y, back to back to back. It's sort of this idea of going into not just a 24-hour time of Sabbath, which is what we talked about, especially last week. It's about what does it mean to enter into a, a time of rest, renewal, and a purposeful, purposeful pursuit of calling. And so what we're doing for our sabbatical is just that, rest, renewal, and calling. And what, what I wanted to do in this series is kind of share with you a little bit about not just ours, but what yours can look like. Whether it's literally a time set aside, what we're doing, or something that's a little bit more imaginative in your life. But regardless of what it is, what does that look like for you to enjoy Sabbath with God? That's what the series has been about. And today we're talking about the second thing there, renewal. What is spiritual renewal? We're going to talk about that. And as I say those words, I know it's a pretty broad term, and I want to start by saying this, that, that for a lot of us, our relationship with God is sort of like that radio station that's not quite locked in. You know what I'm talking about, where, where you've, you've almost got the dial lined up. Back in the old days, you had a dial that you could turn. And, and it's not just quite locked in, right? And so there's, the, there's noise and the cacophony sound in addition to the, that tune or that song that you're hearing in the background. And for a lot of us, myself included, as your pastor, by the way, that's what life feels like sometimes with God, that I don't feel just quite locked in. And so God gives us opportunity for renewal along the way so that we can lock into his tune, to his song, 
That's what I want to talk about today. How do we get there? And what I want to present to you is a, is a, is a journey of sorts. And I can think of no better place, as I was thinking about in preparation, where do I want to go? Where do I want to take you on this journey than Psalm 19? C.S. Lewis, the great C.S. Lewis, he once said this about Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. It is, without a doubt, my favorite psalm. And I think what, what David, the writer, does is he gives us a picture of a journey to the heart of God, to experience God afresh, renewed. So what does that look like? Well, there's three steps on that journey. First is you have to know where to start, right? Every journey has a beginning point. Secondly, you, you need to know where you must go. If you want to get to point B, you got there's a certain journey, a certain place, a certain pathway. But finally, where does it finish? Where does it start? Where it must go? Where it finishes? Let's start with where it starts. Seems appropriate. Look at verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In August of 2017, along with the staff, I was on the rooftop experiencing a full solar eclipse. You remember that? Five years ago almost? It was amazing was in the middle of August, it was August 17th, the middle of August in Georgia, the scorching sun on the rooftop of a concrete jungle called the city of Atlanta, the temperature dropped suddenly because the sun was, was blacked out by the moon. It was just this awe-inspiring moment. And there we were capturing all then. And a day or two later, I found this article from USA Today entitled, for a few hours, America forgets its troubles and solar eclipse, uh, as the solar eclipse captivates the nation. That's the actual title of the article. It's almost as long as the article itself. And, but at one point it says this regarding what people experience. Before the celestial event, Kev Brock thought her husband's enthusiasm was too much, thought the people she'd read about crying and cheering at past eclipses were just overly dramatic. But then the moon crossed the sun in Riverfront Park in Salem, Oregon, one of the most incredible things I've ever seen, she said. It made me cry. And my children cheered. Even astronomers were stunned. The sun disappearing in midday, the stars coming out, truly special, said Steve White, the director of Fresno State University's Downing Planetarium. And later on in the article, this older woman named Blanche Cook, she simply said this, there's something so fabulous about the cosmic magic bringing us all together. Just, just the moon in front of the sun, the awe that that inspires. If that's not enough, listen to some of these statistics. This is beyond stunning. The Milky Way, our own galaxy. It's estimated there are 100 to 400 billion stars in our galaxy. The Hubble telescope, the most powerful telescope that humanity has, estimates in terms of number of galaxies in the universe, just what's observable at least 2 trillion and so if, the, if, our, if our galaxy is just average, somewhere between 100 and 400 billion, now multiply that by at least 2 trillion. And that's just what we can observe. We don't even know how far the universe goes out. I mean, the, it's like 13.7 billion light years and counting so far. And so we don't even know how big it is exactly. And so no wonder scientists estimate that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand. Now, if that doesn't inspire awe in you, you're not alive. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're just not. 
I mean, and, and, and so imagine David. There's no light pollution. We're talking about, about light pollution. We don't even know there are stars. You know, it's, it's, it's essentially that's what it feels like being in the city. But, I mean, when you're in nature, when you're out there, I remember the first time I ever saw the Milky Way, I was like, what is that? You know, it's like it exists, right? And just imagine David every night in Jerusalem because there's no light pollution. And just imagine what he could take in. And so he's writing, it's the heavens declare the glory of God. So what he's saying here is this is where it begins. This is where the journey to God begins. It begins with an awareness that we're not alone in the universe. And so the beginning point for all people, and so you could be coming in here saying, you know, I'm not even yet, I wouldn't yet identify myself as a Christian, but I'm spiritually curious. First of all, welcome. So glad you're here. Number two, you've begun the journey, actually. I want you to know you're on your way. Because this is where it begins. The idea of, of spiritual life, spirituality, spiritual renewal, it begins here with the sense and understanding that we are not alone in the universe. When you think about the grains of sand, not being as populous as the stars in heaven, light years, millions and billions of years away. You see how small you are, how awe-inspiring that actually is. And I think this is what's behind Paul writing Romans. And if you know this story in Romans in chapter 1, he talks about, look, there is a God. And then he says this in Romans chapter 10. Listen, he quotes our verse 4 here in verse 18, where he says this, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth. And the words to the ends of the world. He's quoting Psalm 19. They're saying, yes, look, we know that God speaks, right? He, and, and so he speaks through his creation. No wonder it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, that Jesus, when he prayed, he went to a desolate place. He got out of town, in other words, right? This, uh, this past week, because of the generosity of a family in our church, I had the opportunity to do my annual study leave in the mountains on a, on a lake shore. It wasn't a lake shore. It was above the lake. It was beautiful. And, and I have a mentor, he calls places like that uh, thin places, where, where, the, where the, the, the distance between earth and heaven is, is narrowed. And you can just sense you're in a, just a deeply spiritual place, he called it. And, and for me, that lake house is one of those thin places, honestly, in the mountains. And, and, and so you probably are thinking about something. Maybe it's the beach for you. Maybe it's uh, you just go hiking in the mountains. And, and for you, that's the thin place. But there's something where you're out there and you know it. You have this sense. You can't help it. That's why you're here today. You have this sense, man, there's got to be something bigger than me out there. I don't think I'm alone in the universe as a human being. Right? Like that. And so, and so that's why it says the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork here. Creation is speaking, in other words. There, as I look around the room, some of you are artists. I know you do this for a living and uh, but whether you're an artist yourself or you're just a great aficionado of the arts, uh, what you know this is that the more you study a particular artist, the more you pick up the patterns of that artist, don't you, right? And some people, they are so, so uh, uh, fixed, not fixated, but they're so focused on a particular artist, they not only see the patterns of the artist, they begin to actually see the artist themselves. What you, what you realize is that if you really study Monet, you begin to see through Monet's eyes the world, but then through the eyes of his works, you begin to actually see Monet. And you actually begin to see the character of that artist. What God has done in creation, right, is that he's, he's set out there a speech to say, let me tell you something about who I am. And the more you study it, the more you find yourself in it, the more you marinate there, the more you stay there. 
the more you begin to hear the voice speak. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech. But there's a problem. And the problem is this. Remember, it's like the radio station, not quite locked in. What happens? You hear the din of noise, the cacophony of sound, and, and you can't quite hear the tune. You hear parts of the tune, but you can't quite make out the song. And certainly the song that you're looking for, the song that you're hungry for, the song that you're thirsting for. And that's the problem with creation. Creation is a voice of God. But because the din of noise, the voice is faint. It's not enough. It's simply not enough. It's like this. A beautiful sunset, it will stop you in your tracks, but it won't stop you from making a mess of your life. You need something else. A sunset cannot guide your life as as it's guided across the heavens. You need something else. You need another voice, in other words. Right? And so the creation is limited in what it can tell us about God. Right? It's like this. Uh, I remember, yeah, I shared this last week. I met Kirsten in the seminary, so 26 years ago. And imagine, imagine if that's the only thing I did was I just observed her from a distance. What would I know about Kirsten? I would know she was quite beautiful. I mean, I knew that from day one. But I wouldn't know a whole lot else about her. I could observe her patterns. By the way, that's really creepy. Can you imagine? You know, can you imagine a friend of her saying, that guy's staring at you again. Yeah, he never introduces himself. He just stares at you all the time. Creepy, right? Uh, you would say, get away from me, sort of thing like that. But, but you know, I, I took the step eventually to introduce myself, and she introduced herself to me, and over a period of a couple of years, we became friends, and through that friendship, we eventually fell in love, we became lovers, and we became husband and wife. The rest is history. And, and, and that's what creation, creation is sort of observing from a distance, a lover. It's saying, ah, yeah, she's beautiful, but I, but I want to know more. I want to meet them, right? Well, how do you do that? Creation can't get you there. How does that happen? It's what happens beginning in verse 7. See, thanks be to God. It's not just verses 1 through 7, but we have the rest of the psalm here. Where does revival come from? So second your point here, it's not just where it starts, but where it must go. It goes to the scriptures. Listen to verse 7, the first part. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Have you ever gone away for a few days, you know, and you forgot to water the plants, right? I know we're not alone. Kirsten, we do not have green thumbs, by the way. And so we would go away, we're like, oh my gosh, forgot. Or someone who's watching our house has forgot to water the plant. And so it's like we pray for the, the miracle of Lazarus here. We pray to bring back from the dead. We're going to pour some water on here. And sure enough, the next day, Lazarus comes back from the dead, right? And you, you know what I'm talking about. Like, it's amazing how a plant that looks so dead can be so alive the very next day. Now, if we came home from that trip and we placed a cheeseburger on that potted soil, the plant's going to stay dead or it's going to actually die at that point probably. Or, or if I pour uh, some, some Coca-Cola on or something like that, so, soda, it's not going to, no, it needs one thing to revive. One thing, that's the only thing, nothing else will work. Only one thing will bring Lazarus back from the dead, so to speak. And that's water. And what, what does David say? David doesn't say revival and creation. Oh, thank you for the sunset. Like it's reviving my, my life with you, God. No, no, where is it? The law of the Lord. It's called Torah. 
And so for the Jewish people, this was their scriptures. It was, it was God's moral law written down, the Ten Commandments in there and beyond that. This is what David had. He says, that is the place of revival for me. And what is fascinating is that in verse 1, it says, The heavens declared the glory of God, when in the Hebrew, that's Elohim, right? It's a generic name for God. Every religion, every faith system would use that Elohim as a generic name to describe God or the gods. But here in verse 7, it changes. And seven times over the next seven to eight verses, what do we see? Yahweh. It's the covenantal name of God. Radically different. In other words, what's happened is he's moved from an impersonal God who's out there that since there's something beyond me, he's moved from that to the God who loves me. Someone can say, I believe in a God of love. And I can say, how do you know that there's a God of love? Well, I mean, I look at creation. I say, really? Creation tells you that God is love? When I was in uh, high school also, I remember in college too, we read a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. Some of you will know that name. If you've taken any literature classes in the last 12 or 13 years, maybe not, but certainly before then, she was a, a regular on the literature circuit. And it's about her story. She was a, she was a believer in a, in a greater spirituality, she would have described it. She had a sense that there was a God out there, and so she, she went to nature to discover God. This is what Pilgrim at Tinker Creek is in part about. And she, she had a naive assumption, it turns out, because what she found there was not the God of love. But instead what she found was nature red in tooth and claw. And she, she says that when I was on, when I was you know, staying by Tinker Creek and I was observing in great detail what nature was doing to itself, what I realized that it was nature was far from a benevolent force. Instead, it was predatory. And it was ripping each other apart. Prey, right? The prey from the predators. And in, in addition to that, I just thought about natural disasters. And so I thought, well, yeah, if you think that there's a God of love based upon going to nature, you've got another thing coming to you. You don't discover a God of love from nature. You discover a God of love because there's a presupposition, and it's the Scriptures. This is where we discover actually who a God of love actually is. It's not in nature. It's actually in the Word given to us, written down, the law of the Lord as He calls it here. And what do you see here, verse after verse, encouraging words about who God is? When I was, uh, some of you have heard the story before, but not everyone, uh, years ago, this is 22 years ago now, I worked for an organization called Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And at the time, I was a speaker, and I would, I would travel around the country, sometimes even internationally, speaking about what is Christianity, uh, you know, to both skeptics of the faith as well as those who are new believers in particular. And I had a teaching assignment in Houston. I was coming home. We're at the Atlanta airport. This is before cell phones. Um, but I'd received a message, uh, believe it or not, on a beeper. Um, and, and so I needed to, to make a call in, and I was being called in on my day off. Now, in the teaching world where I was, speaking on the weekend meant that you had a day off during the week, typically Monday, and that was sacred. No one at RZIM would ever call you in for anything. And so to be called in, I knew something was really wrong. And, and so... Um, I just had to come in, and I was like, I can't wait. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. What's going on? So, again, no cell phones from payphone, the Atlanta airport. I called. Kirsten was with me on this teaching assignment. And so I placed a phone call, and to hear on the other line from my boss saying, look, let's talk about when you come in. And I said, no, 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 I need to know now. He said, well, we're letting you go. And some of you will not remember this because of the recession of 07, 08, but 
2000 and 2001, there was another recession. And about half of the, the, the workforce of RZIM, U.S. office at least, we got let go. And it crushed me it, because I loved what I was doing. I used to tell people that what I was doing was like being paid to eat my favorite flavor of ice cream all day long. I mean, I loved what I was doing. And so it crushed me to find out that, that I wasn't going to be employed there for much longer. And there in the airport, I was stunned. I shared the news with Kirsten, and we walked in stunned silence. We got in the car. We went home. We went into her bedroom. We sat on the bed in stunned silence. And I was like, and I literally said, what am I going to do? And I'll never forget what Kirsten said. She said, babe, it doesn't matter. We're in this together. You're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Like, whatever you do, I'm with you all the way. And it was like a dam broke in me. And I wept, I bawled, you know. I felt such shame as the breadwinner of her home, losing my job. And to hear her words of encouragement in the midst of my shame, that's the power of words. I still remember 22 years later, almost, those words, where we were. I can see visually right now where I was on the bed. That's the power of words. You probably have something like that in your life. And what David is saying is, that is the power of the word here. And he, and he doesn't stop there with the revival. He, he says, look, let me show you the power. And he says, it leads to joy and delight. Verse 8 and verse 10 says this, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. When was the last time you thought about law in that way? It brings joy to my heart, law. What he's saying there is you have laid out boundaries for my life. And, and when I see the boundaries, I don't see a prison bars. No, I, I actually see I see freedom. I actually see that, that what I'm made for, what I'm designed for, your laws lead to the flourishing of my life. It leads to the design of my creation, what it means to be human. By knowing your law, by hearing your voice speak words of life over me, I now know how I'm to live. It's sort of like, I've mentioned this before, if you see a hawk flying the thermals and the currents in the atmosphere, and you see them, and you know the stories of how they dive down, they can hit prey from like hundreds and hundreds of feet above. Their eyesight's remarkable, turns out. You know, but if that hawk were on the ground, just hopping around, you know, looking for prey, it's going to be someone else's prey of a coyote or something like that. Because it's not living according to its design. But when it's in its design, when it's in its element, you know, it does what it's supposed to do. And that's what David is saying. He says, look, I love what I'm seeing here. It brings joy to my heart. Then in verse 10, he says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. In the ancient world, just like in our world, gold was everything. And he says, the word of God is so much better than the best things this world can offer. And I know you're probably saying gold and then honey. I mean, really, Scott? I mean, to compare? Well, that was their sweetener. You know, that's what sweetened life. And their food and their drink, it was honey that did that. And so we don't think of honey as that special today, but it was everything back then before natural and refined sugars after all. And so this is picture saying, your word is everything. Martin Luther put it well in a, in a hymn, a well-known hymn called Mighty Fortresses Are God. I'm not going to sing it, but let me read to you one stanza. It says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word. I love that. It's this picture of saying, 
despite the chaos of your life, despite the, the darkness that we see around you, despite what, what the evil one wants to do, it just takes one little word. That's the power of God's word. A sunset cannot do that. The wind, the mountains, the waves in the ocean, they cannot do that for your life. They cannot bring revival. But one little word shall fell him. One little word can bring revival spiritually to a dry and a desolate place in your life. This is the picture that David is, is giving us here. And he says, taste and see how good it is. Listen, if you're here this morning, you're saying, I'm on a spiritual journey. And, and I, I really want to know, is there a God the way that you're describing him right now? Is he there? Is he for me and, and not against me? That sort of thing like that. Here's what I like to say. Test the scriptures. And when you test, you begin to taste. As you test, you begin to taste. Taste and see, the psalmist says, Psalm, uh, excuse me, Psalm 3, how good the Lord is. Taste and see how good he is. Test him. And my promise to you is as you test him, you'll taste and see how good he actually is. So the picture here, what is spiritual renewal? It's intimacy. It's, it's, it's having that love relationship where you're saying, I want to renew that sense of, you know, every, every couple, right? Every, every, even just in a friendship, this is true. It may not be romantic love in a friendship, but it's still the same thing. Like, if you want to renew that relationship, whether it's romantic or otherwise, what do you have to do? You have to spend time with them. And you have to say, I, I, want, to, I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper into your heart and your life, and I just want to be with you right now. And what David is describing or using romantic language is he's being ravished by beauty. He's being ravished by his lover, that God is lover. It's, he's not distant. He's not the, the distant God, of the all of, of, uh, of creation. No, this is a, a lover that he's drawn near. And he's been ravished by beauty. Lewis says that. C.S. Lewis says that as well about Psalm 19. It means to be ravished by a lover. Which leads me to say this. Why am I taking a sabbatical? Right? One is it's what we do every seven years as pastors, typically. And certainly, that's, as I said, policy of city church as well. Let me tell you a couple of reasons why, in particular, I'm taking a sabbatical. Number one is on the other side of the pandemic, um, you talk about dry and desolate place. That's been me in the last couple of years because of the pandemic. And in order, to, in order to leave this church for such a time as this, I'm ready for a time of, of renewed, long refreshment. I need it. And, and, and part, of, part of that is that we are, all of us are designed. That's why I said that all of us need seasons. It's not just 24 hours Sabbath. We need seasons if we can get there, if, if our businesses and places of work can allow that, or just transitions in our life. More on that next week as well. We need times where we can just be alone or at least be silent. And so part of what I'm doing is, in addition to the rest, I'm, we're looking forward to that. We're going to go to the beach one week. And, and uh, we're going to, because our kids are about to go off to college, uh, we're going we're gonna to do something we've never done before and probably never will. And that is we're, we're going to take a trip as a family to Europe. And we're going to spend some time just enjoying good food and amazing culture. Uh, we can't wait to that, that rest. But the renewal for me in particular, I'm going to be with a spiritual director. If you're not familiar with that term, a spiritual director is sort of like a spiritual counselor. And, and that spiritual counselor, they're there to help you through Scripture and through prayer to listen intently to the voice of God in silence. And it's just to, to hear the voice of God. And for me as a pastor, it's, it's to come back to him. Why? Because of the second thing I want to say. And that is for pastors, uh, we often find ourselves working for Jesus rather than abiding with Jesus. We find ourselves, it's just, it's inevitable. Like, I'll, I'll read the scriptures, just devotionally. I'll read the scriptures in the morning. I'll, I'll come to my office, and if there's not a dump truck, 
that's dumping off trash, you know, in the alleyway there, that can really mess up my time with the Lord. But if it, there's silence rarely happens, but sometimes it does. And even in those moments of silence, I'll be reading scripture and I'm, I just, I can't help it. I just naturally say, oh, oh, that relates to my sermon on Sunday. Oh, oh I'm going to write that down. That's a good point. I mean, it's just, the, it's just the nature of the beast. And probably in your line of work, as, as engineers and artists, as you experience, you just can't help you relate that to what you do. And it's just, a, it's part of kind of the, the, the hardship, as it were, of being a pastor, in addition to not being able to celebrate the Sabbath in a way that, that I'm made for. And honestly, I, I can't wait to just, I want to worship at a church for a little while where I can just go and be. You know, I have friends, I never get to go to their churches. I can't wait just to worship with them and listen to them preach. And just no one needs anything from me. I can just enjoy worship, you know. And, and so that's in part the reason why I'm, I'm taking the sabbatical. And next week I'm going to talk more about calling, how that relates to both my calling as well as your calling, but yours. And so spiritual renewal, the reason for that is so that we might draw close to the heart of God. Now I thought about ending here, but I realized I couldn't because of one last thing. Because coming to the Word isn't finishing the journey. And David shows us that here. It's the last thing I want to show you where, where he ends up, where he finishes. Listen to verses 12, and 14, 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David has moved from the beauty of creation, looking out on the vast wilderness, the desert lands around Jerusalem, perhaps. And he looks out and he sees, no, I need more. And he goes to the scriptures and there he begins to be revived. But it, what happens is as he's revived, it naturally leads to a response on his part. He says, have mercy on me, O God. And it's this idea of a plumb line. I've mentioned this before that growing up, my grandparents, they had this tennis ball hanging from a string because the gravity was a straight line. And they would move into the garage, the car. And as soon as that tennis ball tapped their glass on their front windshield, that's when they needed to stop. They wouldn't hit the wall in front of them, but then the garage door could come down behind them. That's how they did that. And it's just this plumb line. And what David is saying is the law. God, God your, your word is the plumb line for my life. But as I look at it, I realize that my life doesn't line up. And so he ends in worship here. And then he, what's fascinating, he uses here the language of sacrifice. In verse 14, may this be acceptable in your sight there. And the idea there is of sacrifice. And so he's looking forward to a sacrifice that will make him clean. And so he's longing, he's hungry, and he's thirsty. He sees his imperfection, so he sees his need for grace, which leads to the very last thing I want to say. This is where our renewal ends. This is where we cross, in a sense, the finish line, and that is Jesus Christ. What does John 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. In other words, David has the word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. He says, I need it. And what do we have? We have the living word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word took on human flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, listen to how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God 
and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you see what he's saying there? He says, if you want to know God, look no further than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Remember the the son, S-U-N. Nothing is hidden from his heat. In the New Testament, it's S-O-N. Nothing is hidden from the radiance of God, the exact imprint of his nature. If you say this morning, I want to know God, I'm a Christian, and I want to go further up and further in, look to Jesus. And I'm really excited about what we're going to do on the other side of the sabbatical when I come back. We're going to do an in-depth, long, it's going to be very long, um, full teaching through the Gospel of Mark. Journey with Jesus is what it's entitled. Because I want us to draw close to the person of Jesus. I want you to see his life, his death, and his resurrection in some profound ways as we travel with Mark on that journey to experience God. And what you see there is as you draw close to Jesus, you see exactly who God is. What, what the writer in Hebrews is saying is, is look no further. The, the, final res, excuse me, the final reflection, the final prophetic teaching, as it were, the final modeling, the final gift, Jesus Christ. And so if you want to know how to live your life, you just look to the life of Jesus. His life is our life, how we're intended to live. And so the good news for us is the picture's worth a thousand words. And so as you get to fill in the picture of Jesus, you see creation was never enough. And the scriptures in and of themselves, they must point us to Jesus. They, this is where we, we see the fullness of what the scriptures were about, why it revives us, because Jesus is perfect. He is the perfect word for us. And so in closing, how do we respond? And I think David teaches here, right? He responds with gratitude. And you know what Psalms are? They're prayers. And, and essentially, Paul, Paul, David responds here uh, with prayer. And so I want to say this. If, you, if you're saying, man, I would love to know how to pray, w- let me tell you one of the best ways you can learn how to pray. In fact, it is the best way by far. You're saying, man, I feel like such a rookie when it comes to prayer, right? We've all been there before. So how do you learn how to pray? It's really easy. You start reading Scripture. Because Scripture was never meant to be a monologue, but a dialogue. And what it is is that when Scripture speaks, this is what Psalm 19 is saying here, when Scripture speaks, we respond. That's what David naturally does. And so we respond when we see the heavens declare the glory of God. We think about the billions of stars in our own galaxy and the billions and trillions and something beyond trillions in the, in the whole universe. And we say, thank you, God. The heavens declare. And then we come, the law of the Lord revives our hearts. And then you come to the person of Jesus Christ say, thank you, gratitude. And you begin to learn how to pray just by, by re- responding back with what you are responded to in Scripture. God is speaking through the scriptures, and he wants you to speak back to him in prayer. And so how do you pray? Two things here in close, and this is what David does. Reveal me. Nothing's hidden from the radiance of God. So Jesus, reveal me. And then secondly, master me. Reveal me. Show me where my hidden sins are, David says. Keep me from the presumptuous sins, yes, but then what happens? Master me. Why would we want someone to master our lives? If that's unfamiliar language, you may be asking that question right now. Why would, why would I want someone to master me? Because here's why. Because he's a master unlike any other. And when he masters you, rather than oppressing you, he liberates you. He causes you to flourish. He gives you grace and mercy. That's what happens at the cross. And being raised to new life with him. And so therefore, we long, we thirst, we hunger. Jesus, master me. And so may it be for you here as you as you prepare here on the Sabbath to enjoy Him more and to rest, and and you experience that spiritual renewal today, in between the Sundays, in your devotional life and so forth, and may you prepare 
for Sabbath rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much um, for creation. We, we don't minimize it in the least bit. As Ian was praying earlier about just the beautiful spring weather, we give thanks. We give thanks for the radiant sun. We give thanks for uh, the coolness in the mornings and the warm afternoons. But we also know that, that creation in and of itself can be destructive. And, and we know that in part of this because of sin entering the world, as it says in Romans chapter 8, and the brokenness therein. So we know that that voice is not enough. So we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you that the word of God took on flesh. We thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ. We thank you that revival ultimately is there. And so change our hearts, revive us, reveal us, master us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. And now we continue in worship through responding to God's word through confession. And once a month, the, the first Sunday.